Heavenly Father, again, we look to you. We thank you that you've given us your word. And we do, again, come to you asking you for wisdom and understanding. We ask you, Lord, to just help us to grab a hold of these things. We really have a heart to want to be ready uh, for what's coming. We want to be ones, O oh Lord, who live in light of the truth of the return of Christ, ones who take opportunity through um, this study to think in terms of uh, those around us that maybe don't know Jesus and, and our responsibility to communicate Christ with them. So just help us tonight as we uh, wrestle through this subject, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, why don't you turn to page seven and we'll be looking at this uh, in a minute as a kind of a summary. Uh, today we're gonna be spending time in Revelation 6 and we might get into Revelation chapter 7 as well. Uh, if you look at this chart though, uh, you'll notice that there are the three lines and then there's a figure of a person standing there and I'm of the opinion that in terms of the prophetic timeline, we are that person that's standing there. Now, some people believe that the next event that's gonna happen in God's prophetic timetable is the event called the rapture where Jesus is gonna return and call us to be with him. Uh, I do not believe that's the next thing that's gonna happen. I think that uh, the next thing that's going to happen is going to be a seven-year agreement that's gonna be made with Israel by a world leader that we refer to as the Antichrist. Um, this world leader is gonna make a peace agreement with Israel and then he's gonna break it in the middle um, and that's gonna begin what's called the Great Tribulation. What I want us to see though tonight is that Revelation 6 corresponds with Matthew chapter 24 very closely and you'll see that as we go through this and then also 2 Thessalonians chapters one and two also correspond with this. Uh, and so I wanna make a, um, I wanna tie all of these together and, and this is part of the way in which I can have confidence that we're getting revelation right. A lot of um, teachings in the Bible are reinforced in a variety of different places and so to get the right understanding of them, you put them all together and you begin to see a picture of the way things are supposed to be laid out. Now, we'll look at this more closely in a minute, but generally speaking, we're that figure. I believe that there's gonna be this seven-year agreement, and so the line represents seven years. The first half of that is what's called birth pains. That's what Jesus called it. Uh, the second half is called the Great Tribulation. And then the day of the Lord is referred to in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the day of the wrath of the Lamb. It's also called, it's, it's when God's gonna judge the world and then following that is going to be this thousand year millennial kingdom that we'll be a part of. But we're gonna begin by looking at Matthew chapter 24 and verse one. And so I'd like to read this and I, I want you just to pay attention to what Jesus said in terms of the signs and the order of things because you're gonna see that it corresponds exactly with what's in Revelation. And then also we're gonna see that it, it ties in even with the timing of the rapture from my perspective. Now next week, Lord willing, I'm planning on giving you a case for why I am more of the opinion that it's a pre-wrath rapture and not a pre-trib rapture. For those of you that are familiar with the terminology, a pre-tribulation rapture believes, or that perspective is that, that we'll be taken up to be with Christ before this seven year begins. We won't go through any tribulation, any hard times. That's a pre-trib rapture. A pre-wrath rapture believes that we'll go through tribulation and much of the tribulation, but we'll be spared the wrath it draws a line between or makes a di distinction between tribulation and the wrath of God because the wrath of God is judgment and we're gonna be spared judgment. And so it makes sense that we'd be taken out of the way before Jesus comes to judge the world. So that's a pre-wrath position. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse one, why don't you follow along as I read. It says, as Jesus left and was going out of the temple complex, his disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. Then he replied to them, don't you see all these things? I assure you, 
Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Verse three, while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So this sets again what the question is about. What is the sign of when you're coming back and the end of the age? Verse four, then Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah and they will deceive many. That's the first one. Then, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place but the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's the second one. Then it says there will be famines and earthquakes in various places and some versions add pestilence. All these events are the beginning of birth pains. Now, if you go back to this chart, you'll see this uh, on the Matthew 24 line, it says beginning of birth pains and then underneath it, false Christs, wars, famines, and earthquakes. That's just what we read about. And this is how Jesus referred to them as birth pains. Now, I believe that these birth pains are uh, events that will begin before the seven years starts. But there'll be a marked difference once this tribulation period starts. In other words, I think the heat's gonna turn up at the beginning of the seven-year period. But these things, I think, are starting to unfold now. There are verses in the Bible that talk about the fact that the world's gonna wear out, basically. In fact, one of the signs toward the end is a worldwide um, earthquake. Uh, I, I think it's, it, the, the earth is gonna be, in a sense, wearing out. And so some of that, I think, is already starting. And more and more, we're hearing some of these stories about you know, earthquakes in Ohio, for example, which was unheard of about 40 years ago. I'd never heard of such a thing. And, and even in West Virginia and other places, and you realize some of these things may be starting now. And some of the discussion related to to um, the, the climate and some of these other things could have prophetic significance. Heating things up as we get ready for what's going to happen. Now, this illustration of birth pains is a, a very good illustration because uh, birth pains, as you know, as you get closer to the time when the baby's gonna be born, they increase in intensity and they increase in frequency. So uh, my wife has had five children. I've been there for all five of them. Usually the starting point for all five was when her water broke. And so there was a defining moment in which things started to kind of kick into action there. And then she began these, these birth pains. And at first they were mild, they, they, they weren't so bad, and they didn't happen real often. But then as time went on, they got closer and closer and closer together and they got harder and more difficult and more painful until finally it was time for the baby to be born. And that's exactly, I think, the illustration that Jesus is giving. There are going to be false Christs, and the main one is the Antichrist himself. There are gonna be wars, famines, earthquakes, epidemics, and some of these, by the way, are related because if you have wars, you're gonna end up with the famines and you're gonna end up with epidemics and other things that all stem from that, but they're gonna get worse. Now that, again, corresponds with Revelation chapter six that we're gonna look at here tonight. Now, if you were here last time, uh, we talked about Revelation four and five, and I just wanna give a little reminder about that, but um, we had a scene in heaven and of course, the first part of Revelation, it started with uh, how Jesus appeared. And then there were, there were messages given to seven different churches that I think represent seven different ages, perhaps, until Christ would come. And then you get to chapters four and five, and there was a scene in heaven where we really kind of pull back the curtain and we see what God is getting ready to do. And there was a scroll that God had, and the question was raised, who could open this scroll and there was nobody that was qualified to do so it was a scroll that had seven seals on it and it was it was completely sealed up nobody could open it and then Jesus appears and he's the one that is beginning to unfold the seals now these seals represent the beginning of this tribulation period now something I want to look at next either next week or the one after 
is that if you read the book of Revelation, there are three groups of seven. Uh, there are seven seals that you read about, and then you're gonna read about uh, seven uh, trumpets, and then you're gonna read about seven, boy, what's the third one? I was in planet, what's that? Bowls, yes, seven bowls. The first group of six seals are what we'll be talking about here tonight. The seventh seal is the next seven things. And then it's the same thing. The next six will unfold and then the seventh one contains all the bowls. I wanna show you a chart of that next week. But anyway, this starts here where the lamb is in heaven. He's getting ready to open the scrolls and now we switch over to Revelation chapter six and verse one. And turn to page, for this one, turn to page 29 in your book. And if you're the type of person who wants to take notes, it's mostly a, bank, a blank page, but you'll be able to take notes on that page. Let's begin reading in Revelation 6 and verse 1, and notice the similarity between what's described here and what Jesus talked about. In verse 1, it says, Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. The horseman on it had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he went out as a victor to conquer. Now, there are a lot of details here. We're talking about a horse. In biblical times, a horse was like a war engine. And so I think this is a military idea here. And in this case, the horse is white. And white in the Bible typically represents purity. And so you have this figure riding this white horse, but he's also got a bow and he's got a crown. And so this person is a ruler. So you wonder who this is. Well, I think this represents the Antichrist. He's gonna present himself as this Messiah-type person. And people are gonna believe it. They're gonna think he's a good person. When he first announces himself, they're gonna think he's a Messiah, a savior type of person. Of course, we call him Antichrist because he's gonna really imitate Christ in a lot of different ways. He's gonna oppose Christ. He's gonna declare himself to be God before all is said and done. But this is how he's presenting himself, this Antichrist. And I think this lines up with what Jesus was talking about. He said the very first thing he said, what was it? There'd be these false Christs. And I think there'll be more people putting themselves out there claiming to be prophets of God or claiming to be messiahs or whatever, but, but it's all typified in this one individual who will be the Antichrist, the one who is going to cause all this trouble. And that is the start of it. And so if we go back to Matthew 24 and verse four again, the disciples asked, when is your coming gonna be? And he replied to them, watch out, no one deceives you, for many will come in my name. I'm the Messiah, and they'll deceive many. But I think Revelation 6 is talking specifically about this Antichrist, and that is the thing that's, again, kicking off the seven-year period, and so it makes sense this would be the first seal. But let's continue reading about the second seal, beginning in Revelation uh, 6 and verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse went out, a red fiery one, and its horseman was empowered to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another and a large sword was given to him. So now we've got a red horse. Red, of course, is the color of blood. This particular rider on this horse has a sword in his hand. Again, this could be the, end of, uh, the Antichrist as the actual rider. It doesn't specify one way or the other, but what we are talking about is the second thing Jesus said. What did he say? There'll be wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise up against nation. We'd like to think that things are gonna get more peaceful in the days ahead, but it's very clear that, that there are gonna be wars and battles, and it's happening all over the place. I mean, the world is a mess as, as we speak about it. And so that corresponds again with Revelation, or Matthew chapter 24 and verse six, where we read, you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And this horse, of course, was given the authority to take peace from the earth. I don't know all the implications of that except that he's gonna be empowered. God's gonna allow him to do this. 
and cause these disruptions all over the place. It suggests to me, by the way, that the Antichrist's rise to power will not be easy. In fact, elsewhere we read that um, the Antichrist, it appears, is gonna defeat three other countries when he comes into power. But let's read about the third seal. And again, if you were here last couple weeks, I talked about the fact that before one seal can be opened, the, the previous one has to be opened. And so you open the first one and certain things happen. You open the second one, certain things happen. You get to the third seal, beginning in verse five. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creatures say, come. And I looked and there was a black horse. The horseman on it had a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the oil, olive oil and the wine. What is this speaking about famine? Which again is what Jesus said. A denarius was a day's wage. And so if you think, if somebody makes in our day and age, if we just put it in modern terms, just to get a sense of this, uh, if somebody makes $20 an hour and they work eight hours a day, it's $160. And so we're talking about $160 for one quart of wheat. And of course, in biblical times, wheat was even cheaper. And so this was an exorbitant amount, but it's showing that there's gonna be a shortage of food, there's gonna be a famine in, across the world in various places anyway. And it's gonna be uh, incredibly... Uh, hard to find food during this time. Now, going back to Matthew again, the third sign in Matthew 24, 7, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And of course, I think a lot of this is happening already. Then we come to the fourth seal, and I believe that the fourth seal is kind of a culmination of the first three kind of brings together the effect of the first three and, and kind of brings it all together, I think, under this Antichrist figure. In Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8, we read, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. The horseman on it was named Death, and Hades was following after him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by wild animals of the earth. And so some of these are repeated. The sword is there, famine is there, it adds wild animals. And so here you have a, a pale green horse. Of course, what does that remind you of in terms of its color? Well, it's the color of a corpse. And in Bible times, I understand that oftentimes they would they'd go around after a battle or as they were going through a particular area, somebody was given the charge to pick up the bodies and put them in a cart or whatever, and they'd move along and they'd, they'd put in all the carts. And so you had death. In this illustration, you have death, the fourth seal. It's being followed by Hades. Hades is like scooping up the dead, in other words, they're being gathered and sent to Hades. Now, who are these people that this, are, this is happening to? Uh, they're not believers, they're unbelievers. When Christians die, we don't, we don't go to Hades. Uh, Paul said absent from the body means present with the Lord. I think we go to be with, with Christ up in heaven. In fact, elsewhere in Revelation, well, we'll see it here in chapter, Elsewhere, I think it's, it might even be tonight, we read about souls being underneath the altar up in heaven. And so I think we're gonna be up in heaven at this time. Who goes to Hades? Well, it's those that aren't believers yet. Uh, Hades is like a, a temporary holding place. It is not like a purgatory. When people think of purgatory, they think of the ability to work your way out of your your condemnation or whatever and finally go to heaven. But Hades is not a place like that. Uh, in uh, Luke chapter 16, I think it is, you read the story of Lazarus and the rich man and it describes this place called Sheol or Hades. In the Old Testament, it was the place of the dead, Sheol. It, it goes by the New Testament name of Hades. Uh, it used to be that this particular place had two compartments. One was called paradise and the other was, was just the place of the dead. I don't remember if there was a further name for that, but there was a big gap between the two. And in the Old Testament, this was an essential thing. When people died in the Old Testament who were believers, they either went to paradise or they went to this place of torment or to 
it describes it as being a fiery place and where the, uh, the rich man in that part of Hades was very, very thirsty and whatever else. And then on the other side in paradise was Abraham and Lazarus and they could see each other but they couldn't cross over. Now in the Old Testament, the reason this was essential was because their sins had not yet been forgiven. In the Old Testament, sins were atoned for. The idea is they were covered. It was like a temporarily because Christ had not yet died. Their sins had not yet been paid for and so they had to stay in Sheol or the place of the dead in the Old Testament. But as soon as Christ rose again from the dead, I think they were released from Hades and made their way up to be with Christ. And this to me, I think I might have mentioned the first week, explains why there's this interesting um, description given in one of the Gospels how after Jesus rose from the dead, certain righteous people were seen walking around Jerusalem who had already died. And I think it's a picture of the fact that they were set free from Hades. And now, of course, since Christ has died and, and rose again from the dead, if we put our trust in him, we don't go to Hades but we end up going to be with Christ. Now, this says that uh, the authority was given to this particular horseman over a fourth of the earth. Uh, this could imply that up to a fourth of the earth of people are gonna die, that, that the death would be that extensive, or it could just mean that a fourth of the earth in terms of regions a fourth of the planet is gonna be such that there's gonna be extreme death in those areas. It's hard to dis distinguish which one it might be. Now these four seals are the beginning of the hard times. And again, I think they're, they're the birth pains that Jesus was talking about. When you get to the fifth seal of Revelation, there's a change that takes place. The fifth seal of Revelation, I believe, occurs in the middle of the tribulation. It, it begins what we call the great tribulation and the reason it's called the great tribulation mostly, I think is because of the persecution that's gonna take place against Christians and Jews. It's gonna start with the Jews, it's gonna move on to Christians that are around. Now if you're taking notes, turn to page 31 where we come to the next uh, section here where it talks about the great tribulation, the fifth seal, and then the martyrs. Let's read about it in Revelation 6, beginning in verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the people slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? So a white robe was given to each one of them and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow slaves and their brothers who are going to be killed just as they had been. This is, of course, the other group. The one group is dying, they're ending up in Hades. This is another group that's dying, but these are believers in Christ. This refers to the persecution that's gonna take place. And so you have this scene in heaven where they're demanding justice which justice, revenge is not a good thing, but justice is. And they're asking for justice. When, when are you gonna avenge our deaths? When are you gonna take care of those who are doing these horrible things, who have taken our lives? When are you gonna do that? And God says, wait just a little bit longer because we need to get to the last person that's gonna die as a martyr. As soon as the last person is martyred, just as you have been martyred, then, then it's time. It would be time for Christ to come back. Now, that fifth seal corresponds again with Matthew. So after Jesus talked about the birth pains, what does he say next? Well, Matthew 24, 9 through 14. It says, then they will hand you over for persecution and they will kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Again, I think these are Christians, not unbelievers, because at this point in the story, the Jewish nation has not yet found their Messiah, their Christ. These are, this is talking about believers in Christ being persecuted for the name of Jesus. Verse 10, then many will take offense, betray one another and hate each other. That word um, take offense or that phrase comes from the word from which we get a scandal, but it has the idea of setting a snare or a trap. 
Uh, it implies that um, people are going to be after fellow Christians, many times friends, many times family members. Verse 10 again, then many will take offense, but it means set traps. They'll betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many because lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Of course, I've mentioned before that I believe the last event that will take place before Jesus actually comes back to reign is that the gospel will go out to all the world. A lot of the things we're reading about in terms of even the judgments that are coming are about getting people to turn back to God. And God's sending out the message of the gospel and reaching people. It's not like God, God does not want to judge people. He would rather save them. And he's giving opportunities here, but you can see that in the process, while this great tribulation is taking place, a lot of people are going to be killed and martyred for their faith. And it's because of this Antichrist. Now, Matthew, again, continues talking about, and this is where, again, I say it's the middle of the tribulation. It talks about this Antichrist figure that's going to lead to this mass persecution. Beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 24. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Uh, this phrase, abomination that causes desolation, my Bible indicates it could, it could be translated a desolating sacrilege. It's a reference to what was talked about in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, there's a prophecy made about a world leader who was gonna rise up after Daniel's age, and he was going to desecrate the temple. And this particular world ruler already came and went. And what he did was he sacrificed a pig. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig in the temple. It was someone that is a picture of the future Antichrist. And so Daniel talks about this second figure that's gonna come, that's gonna be just like the guy that he prophesied about earlier and someone who's already come and it did these very things. And so we're told when you see this person in the temple desecrating this holy place, probably by again sacrificing a pig there, an unclean animal in the temple, then it says in verse 16, those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Woe's, bro, I'm sorry, woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were limited, no one would survive, but those days will be limited because of the elect, because of God's people. He's gonna shorten those days. And so it's gonna get really, really bad. Now this starts again with, I think, the Jewish nation. They're gonna be over there in Israel. This event is gonna take place and Jesus is saying, you better get out of there quickly. Now, I believe that 144,000 from the Jewish nation will indeed escape, and they will be protected by God, and they're gonna form the basis of the millennial kingdom that's coming. But after the persecution begins with the Jewish nation, I believe it's gonna continue on against Christians. It means that we will have some time, and I think there are some preparations that Christians could make. We, I think we'll be aware of this if indeed we're here. Now, again, we're hoping for the rapture, to happen before this, but if not, I think we're gonna recognize these events. We're gonna see what's happening, we'll know exactly what it is, and we'll have a sense in which we would know when Christ is coming back. We won't know the day or the hour, but we'll have a sense of when he's coming back. Now again, this corresponds with the fifth seal of Revelation chapter six, and it lasts three and a half years. Now, if we continue the story, Jesus' side of the story as he's explaining to his disciples when all this is gonna happen. From a pre-wrath perspective, if, if indeed um, 
Jesus is coming back sometime during that great tribulation, but prior to the wrath that's coming, the judgment that's coming on the world, I would expect the rapture to happen next in Jesus' dialogue. That's when I would expect it to happen, and I think that is what happens. In verse 29 in Matthew chapter 24 again, we read, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and celestial powers will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the peoples of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four wing winds from one end of the sky to the other. So what does it look like is happening here? Well, he's gonna have some final signs in the heavens to get people's attention that Jesus is gonna appear. And then it says God's angels are sent to collect the elect. I think the event we're looking at is the rapture. This is the event that takes place before Jesus comes down to judge the world and before we have this event called Armageddon. Now, if that's true, if this event that we're reading about in Matthew 24, 31 is indeed the rapture, you would expect that the next thing in Revelation would also be the rapture, wouldn't you? I mean, that, that would be in our timetable, the next thing. Well, I think it is. Let's go to the sixth seal. In verse 12 of um, Revelation chapter six, then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. Doesn't that sound familiar to Jesus' description, some of it anyway? The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky separated like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was moved from its place. This is, I think, the exact same event. The signs in the heavens, Jesus is presenting himself on this occasion right here. The stars falling from heaven, by the way, are probably meteors. Now, this sixth seal is different than all the others. All the others were things that are just part of the normal course of life in hard times. I mean, really hard times, but they're earthly things. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes. You know, these are all things that are just natural occurrences. But when you get to this sixth seal, this is something that's entirely different. You're reading about the sun turning dark. You're reading about the moon turning the color of blood. You're reading about meteors or stars falling from the heavens and likely hitting the earth. This is divine. I mean, this is, this is the difference. And from a pre-wrath position, this is the beginning of the wrath of God, but of course, we're called up to heaven when Jesus Christ appears, when, when all this happens. and we find God intervening on our behalf. Now this was prophesied, by the way, in the Old Testament in other places. One reference, for example, is Joel 2, verses 30 and 31. Again, this is Old Testament, so I think it's significant because all of this is, has been predicted thousands of years ago. Joel writes, I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awe-inspiring day of the Lord comes. So right before the day of the Lord, right before the wrath of the Lamb, right before the judgment of God, there are gonna be all these signs in the heavens. And again, I think this is the point in which we find ourselves raptured. Verse 15 of Revelation 6 then, going back, and I know I'm kind of flipping back and forth here. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and who's able to stand? Apparently they see some kind of a glimpse in heaven and they realize what this is, it's God and it's his son Jesus. They realize it at this point. Now, I'd like to look at two charts that kind of summarize this. The first one is found on page 33. 
And this is a, a diagram, a chart diagram that shows how I think this thing is gonna unfold. You've got, first of all, the white horse, uh, which is again the false prophets or the false messiahs. You've got the red horse, which is a picture of war. You've got the black horse, which is famine and pestilence and earthquakes. You've got the pale horse, which is death, all of this. The fifth seal is martyrs. And again, this starts at the three and a half year point when the Antichrist will be revealed for who he is. He will break his agreement with Israel. He'll desecrate the temple at that point, which by the way, does suggest that um, at least the sacrificial system will be up and running when this guy comes into power. And I've mentioned before that I think this might be the agreement he makes with Israel to say you can begin sacrificing again. And then he's gonna desecrate it. Doesn't mean the whole temple will be built yet necessarily, but it, it does imply that the sacrificial system will be up and running when he's revealed. And then you have what's called the great tribulation here. And then the sixth seal is signs in heaven. This is where Christ is revealed. And then this is again where saints are resurrected and raptured. And you got several references there. And then the trumpets begin and the trumpets are the day of the Lord. Now turn to the next page, page 35. Oops, went the wrong direction. And uh, again, you see how this is uh, panning out here. You've got the beginning of the birth pains, which is the seals. The seals cover the tribulation plus the great tribulation. Again, at the three and a half year point, the Antichrist is revealed. Then Christ is revealed in the heavens and we're gathered to him, that's the rapture. Then begins the trumpets, which is the day of the Lord. And then the bowls are the final judgment on the earth. And after this, Christ begins to reign on the earth. Okay, now, um, the question is, how far can we get in chapter seven? Why don't you turn to page 37, because I think I wanna go a little bit, uh, at least till quarter till. We'll see how far we get. Two things happen in Revelation chapter seven. Uh, the first is that 144,000 Jews are sealed by God on earth, and they're actually mentioned by name, the different tribes or family lines. That's the first thing that happens. And then the second thing that happens in chapter seven is that a great multitude appear in heaven, or appears in heaven. Now, I believe that that is the rapture. And again, this is what I would expect at this point in the story. If indeed that there's a pre-wrath rapture of the church, I would expect that all these seals would be undone and all these things would happen and then there'd be the sign in the heavens and then I think the rapture would take place and then things really get bad after that. So let's begin reading about that in Revelation 7, beginning in verse one, where John writes, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. What is that a picture of? Well, it sounds to me like it's the quiet before the storm. You know, right before the tornado hits, everything's just quiet. And that's what seems to be happening. God is holding things back just for a moment, the quiet before the storm. Verse two, then I saw another angel who had a seal of the living God rise up from the east. And in biblical terminology, the east is where salvation comes from. Comes from the east. That's the direction associated with salvation. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were empowered to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. Now, seals, in biblical times, as we've talked before, are a picture of ownership. Uh, they are a picture of protection, and they're a picture of authenticity. So if something were sealed, if it's sealed by, say, the king or whatever, it would show it belongs to the king, that's ownership. The seal is intended to protect the contents from being read by someone that should not read them, and it also shows it's authentic. Now, these people are gonna get, it says, a seal on their foreheads. Uh, this should cause you, if you're familiar with Revelation, to immediately think of another 
occasion where people are gonna get a mark on their hand or their forehead, where the Antichrist is gonna require this. So this guy is gonna do a lot of things that are very similar to what Christ is doing here. A scholar by the name of Thomas, though, explains why the forehead, it was not uncommon for a soldier or guild member to receive such a mark as a religious devotee. The mark was a sign of consecration to deity. The forehead was chosen because it was most conspicuous, the most noble, and the part by which a person is usually identified, you know, by the face. And so these people are being marked. And Revelation 7, by the way, corresponds with Revelation 14. So when we get to 14, we're gonna have to go back and look at seven. But in 14.1, we read this, then I looked and there on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, I believe that these ones are being protected by God. They are ones that are gonna hide in Petra. The Antichrist is gonna try to kill them specifically by drowning them. It's not going to work, but God is again preserving 144,000 that will form the basis of his millennial kingdom. Also, the way these are listed in the book of Revelation, it's kind of like a military formation. Ezekiel spoke about this as well. There's gonna be revival at the end when Christ comes back. In Ezekiel 36, 24 to 28, we read, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Then you will live in the land that I gave your fathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. This happens at the very end. And so when these people are first sealed, they don't, I don't think they put their faith in Christ yet, but when he appears, we read in the Old Testament that they're gonna weep when they see him and they're gonna realize what they've done. And there's gonna be a tremendous revival that's gonna take place. These are gonna be people, 144,000, that are gonna put, I think at that point, their trust in Christ. And they're listed by tribe or family name, but there are some tribes that are missing. Uh, the first tribe that's missing from this list, there are 12 tribes of Israel. The one that's, first one that's missing is Dan. The second one that's missing is Ephraim, although it's possible that Ephraim is wrapped up in the name Joseph in this list, because Joseph's son was Ephraim. In which case, Dan might be gone from this list for this reason, that was the first tribe or family line that, that pursued adultery or idolatry. They were the first tribe to turn away from God, and so they're not included here on this list, which is kind of a scary thought. And then one that is included is Levi. These ones are ones, though, that are being protected from the wrath of God. Now, let's read about them, beginning in verse four. We read, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, which could be Ephraim again, and 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. As miraculous as it seems, it appears that God is preserving these people's identity, that there are gonna be 12,000 and he knows what tribe they're from. Most Jewish people today do not know what their family line is, but God does. And it appears there'll be ones from each of these different ones. This, by the way, is, um, well, no, no, no let, me, let me just keep going here. Um, continuing in verse nine, we find another group of people. So this, these are the Jewish ones. Beginning in verse nine, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number. Standing before the throne and before the lamb, they were robed in white with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. 
All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders asked me, who are these people robed in white and where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. What does it look like? People from every tribe, tongue, nation, everything. All of a sudden, a number that can't be counted. I think it's the rapture. I think these are believers. In verse, continuing, uh, it says, they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary. The one seated on his throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to the springs of living waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I find that very encouraging. I think that's us. I think that that's the rapture. So the two groups are sealed for this occasion just before the wrath is about to come, the 144,000 Jewish people and then the believers in Christ, the Christians. Now, this morning, if you were here, the last thing I want to show is this chart. This morning, if you were here, um, you saw this chart that I put up and I believe that this is, these Jewish holidays are a prophetic chart. And so the Passover was fulfilled in Jesus' death. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was fulfilled in his burial because that's when they remove all the leaven and hide it. It's like he was hidden for three days. First fruits are the resurrection. Jesus is called the first fruits of those from the dead. Pentecost was the birth of the church, the Feast of Ingathering. And then we're in the church age right now. In between the, f- the spring and the fall, there are no no feasts or holidays, and I think that's the church age. That's where we are. What's the next thing to happen? Well, the trumpet. The trumpet's gonna sound, and the Feast of Trumpets, I believe, refers to the rapture. Then you've got the Day of Atonement. That's when Israel is gonna repent and turn to Christ. It's gonna be a day of great sorrow. They're gonna cry. It says like someone who's lost a, a son, firstborn son. And then the last thing on there is the Feast of Tabernacles and it refers to the Millennial Kingdom where God is gonna tabernacle with us, which is what we just read about in the book of Revelation. All right, uh, so with that summary in place, any questions anyone has? We've got three more weeks, by the way. People are asking how long is this thing going? Maybe until Jesus comes back, but. Uh, we got three more uh, weeks of this and I need to get to chapter 11 and then in the spring, I think of the third week in January, I think is the start of the, the rest of the book, which um, again puts a spotlight on the first half of the book in greater detail. And so we'll see where the two overlap and it, then it gives us even greater understanding about what's gonna happen. Okay, questions? Okay. Yeah. Hi. Hi. In Matthew 24, 22, Jesus is talking about the great tribulation. And he says, unless those days be shortened, no flesh would be alive to remain on earth. Now, do you believe that there is a literal shortening of days? Uh, Perhaps a gravitational pull on the earth that starts it spinning more quickly so a day is not 24 hours but maybe 16 hours or some other number or is that just symbology? I think that's a reference to a period of time and so it's talking about like the days of our life. It's a, it's a period of time and so what it's saying is this, this period of intense persecution, if it was allowed to continue, everyone would die. All the things that we're talking about in the tribulation, the great tribulation, if God did not cut it short, everyone would die. And so I think it's the days, talking about in terms of that period, that season, uh, if that season would be another way to put it, if it weren't cut short, um, it's gonna be that bad. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. This is gonna be really, really bad. But God's gonna intervene. The rapture's gonna happen. The 144,000 are gonna be saved. He'll preserve his own, so. Okay, yep. Um, could you explain a little bit about the Antichrist and in a little more detail or is it that vague? 
It's, it's fairly vague. A lot of people believe that the Antichrist is actually going to be from an Israelite. Some think that that's what he's going to be, but we don't know where he's going to arise from right now. Again, I used to believe that the Antichrist was going to come out of the European Union, what was then the European Union, or what was called the Common Market, you know, 10-nation confederacy, uh, the EU now, but I, I'm believing that it's actually going to be perhaps out of the Islamic nations instead. And it's possible, though, that this person then um, isn't Jewish but would be Islamic. We know certain things about him. In fact, when we get to the Antichrist in Revelation, the description given of this guy, he's very boisterous, very, very loud, very sacrilegious. Eventually, again, he presents himself as God. But he's going to be somebody that's um, just so godless that I think any Christian is going to look at this and say, this guy is... Horrible, and yet the world's going to be enamored by him. Uh, and so we don't we don't know exactly who he is or whatever, but somehow uh, he's going to come into power. I think that there'll be some kind of tragedy or something in the world that's going to take place, and people are going to say, you know, we really need to be one world. We need to unite under one world. And then we do know that he's going to demand loyalty. And people will not be able to buy or sell unless they get his mark on their forehead or on their hands. Uh, but we don't know much more about him. But I think we'll get into some more detail because he's described again in the book of Daniel, the kind of person he is, is, is foretold in the book of Daniel. He's a, just a godless individual. But at first, he'll seem like a peacemaker. In the book of Thessalonians, it talks about the fact that, that when this peace agreement is made, everyone, there are gonna be parties all over. People can say, finally, peace, peace. And Paul says at that point, watch out because it's coming. So, all right. Yeah, so um, we spoke about Joel 2, um, in verse 30, about show wonders in the heavens on the earth. Yeah. On the earth, okay. And now, obviously, uh, Peter quotes this in yes. Acts 2. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. the previous scriptures that he quotes as well there, could you maybe speak about, about that, about the pouring of uh, the Spirit of God on the church? Okay, yeah. So on the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted from this Joel passage. Uh, one thing, again, I've mentioned before about the prophecies in the Old Testament, that prophecies many times have double and triple fulfillments, and that sometimes a prophecy is fulfilled partly at one point and fulfilled later in another. Uh, And so I think in the book of Acts, uh, Peter was referring to the fact that the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was going to be a sign that we're entering into this, you know, this last day's age or whatever, which is now the age of the Gentiles. And so I think that was the partial fulfillment of that. The ultimate fulfillment, though, of this is going to culminate with the sun turning black and the moon turning blood orange or red. And... um, And so that part hasn't been fulfilled. And I think what this is a reference to, and it it relates to Ezekiel as well, the vision of the dry bones. What's gonna happen is that, again, there's gonna be a spiritual revival among the Jewish nation. God's gonna give them a new heart. He's gonna replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and they are gonna be his people. So I think specifically Joel's referring to that event. But Peter, the partial fulfillment happened in the book of Acts. To that so that's my perspective on that so anything else all right well why don't we close in prayer you can catch me afterwards if you got some other questions father thank you that you have everything in your hands that um that this is none of this catches you by surprise and and you are god and sovereign over all these things thank you lord that we do not have to be afraid that you are our God and you are our Savior and whatever we're going to endure, you're gonna give us the grace we need to endure it. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for your spirit that brings life to us, O Lord, and for the joy that we have of knowing you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.